Hello and welcome back to It's a Musical Podcast, the podcast show where I force my boyfriend to watch musicals and then we talk about them. I am Danny. And I'm Drew. Are you not the boyfriend this week? I might not be, uh, for long <laughs> as I don't know who your favourite Broadway performer is. I yes. still have no idea. I didn't say Broadway, I said musical. Either way, I still don't know who they are. So if you listened last week, at the end of our episode about Once Upon a Mattress, we're talking about this week's episode and we're going to be watching The Producers. And I said that in this movie, somewhere, is my favourite stage performer... Or musical performer. And you said I would know who they are. You said that we have talked about them on an episode so far, but we haven't actually seen them so far. Yep. I've been racking my brains all week. Yeah, I've said a few names to you. I have no idea who it is. You've just been randomly guessing. Who do you you guess? You guess Julie Andrews, who is not in this film. No, but considering the way you talk about Julie Andrews, I think it's a fair... That was a fair guess, yeah. Fair guess. I would say. You're going to be really annoyed, I think, when it is revealed who it is. Because I'm not going to tell you until they appear in the film. But they're a stage actor. I've not told you their gender. No, you haven't. I try to use the term actor for everything. It's all-encompassing because, yeah, like, one and the same. But... Stage performer. I have no idea at all who this could be. I know you don't. And it's very, very funny. Because I know I've said a few names that I like, but I don't think you're sold on them, those people. No. And I think I've guessed a few people are perhaps more recent than this, because this being 2005. Yeah. So, I'm drawing blanks. Well, I guess we'll find out when we get to watching the film. Exactly. The Producers is 2005. The version we're watching, yes, is the 2005 movie... With Matthew Broderick, Nathan Lane, and Will Ferrell. Yeah. I have no idea. And Uma Thurman. That's what my next point was going to be is I have no idea who the women involved in this are. Yeah. I'd thought of a few people that were noticeable around the time, but then I realised they wouldn't have been involved. So, like Renee Zellweger, she'd have been too busy with Chicago around this time, yeah. or just off Chicago and probably not up for signing up for another musical. Mm-hmm. I guess Sarah Jessica Parker might have been involved. I know she's got some musical background and obviously is in a relationship with Matthew Broderick. I had no idea who... Was she? She is. She's married to him. They married? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Which is even more reason. I'm going to keep going about why Deck the Halls is such a great film. Because it's got Danny DeVito, Matthew Broderick, Christian Chenoweth, who you'd like. Yeah. But it's also got... And I can't remember her name right now, but one of the other actresses from Sex in the City mm. plays Matthew Broderick's wife. And yeah. I just find that hilarious that his wife is someone his actual wife is friends with. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> there are very few women in this musical. The main female character is played by Uma Thurman. And I love Uma Thurman. Same, and I love her in this. I want to dance like Uma Thurman. You won't when you see this. Uma Thurman's great. Yeah. And you don't see her in as much nowadays as I'd like because she's very talented. You know, she was dating Quentin Tarantino for a point in time as well. That's a weird combination. That is a weird combination. Anyway, moving on from this tangent to talk about the producers. So, what do you know about the producers? Because you had a guess at the end of last week's episode. 
I, Do you want to repeat what you said then? I said I was the expert on this one because I knew Mel Brooks was involved, but yeah. you didn't. Yeah. But then you debunked my expertise very quickly when I said, Wolf Alvin was a Nazi, so is this set in World War Two Germany? And the answer is no. And then I said, there's no business like show business. And, <laughs> and the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, no, that is... I also true. tried... One of the songs that's from a more recent musical. It's a musical. Yeah, no, that's from a musical. Yeah. I sing that all the time. Which, you can't blame me for thinking either of those two might be from the producers. I think that makes sense. This is presumably a show about getting a show made. Yeah. And the workings behind the scenes and the struggles of working with actors. Sure. Specifically actors like Will Ferrell who are probably going to be quite diva-ish and demanding. If you say so. That's what I reckon. Okay. He's... So you think the plot of this is somebody's trying to get a show made. Or two people, Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. They're the producers. Okay. They're trying to get a show made. Yes. And you think Will Ferrell's the actor that they hire? Well, I think Will Ferrell is someone that is prominent in this. I know he won a Golden Globe for this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could also be Uma Thurman. Essentially, I feel like you've got to deal with the shenanigans that come with making a show, dealing with actors' demands and dealing with all the backstage politics. Sure. Obviously, Wolfell playing a Nazi character, perhaps he's just playing a Nazi in their play. I don't know. So this version's 2005. Yeah. But it's an older story. So in 1967, yeah. a movie came out called The Producers, okay. which is exactly the same plot, but isn't a musical. It's just a film. Okay. And that was made by David Geffen, who basically persuaded Mel Brooks, who he knew, yeah. to make his film into a stage musical for unknown reasons. I guess he thought it just might have been a good, considering the subject of it is about making a musical he must have thought oh this would actually make a good stage musical so he went to Mel Brooks and he said please turn this into a stage musical and Mel Brooks met with Jerry Herman to sort of discuss them working together Jerry Herman was he one of the lyricists or composers for Mary Poppins or Disney no, that's at the time? Sherman. Sherman's yeah. okay fine the Sherman I reckon... Brothers. okay close yeah Herman Okay. Jerry Herman. So he, he went to Jerry Herman and said, do you want to work on this with me? And Jerry Herman said, no, do it yourself. You can write songs. You're fine. Yeah. So Mel Brooks said, okay. And then he hired Thomas Meehan to join him in writing the book for the stage. And then he, he got Susan Stroman to agree to help him direct it. Okay. Uh, and the stage musical came out in 2001. Wow, so a long time after. Yeah. How long was he making it? Like, when when was the idea first shot of it being turned into a stage show? Was it in the 1990s or had he been working on it a lot longer? Uh, he'd been asked to change it into, he'd been asked by David Geffen in the 80s. Wow, so it's a to do it. 20 year odyssey. Yeah. Show. And it got workshops for years and then it got put on hold and then eventually. In 2001, a musical came out on Broadway. So that's very quick transition. A lot of musicals are on stage a lot longer before they're ever turned into films. Mm. 
whereas this was only about three years until you know until filming might have begun. Yeah, yeah, which is super interesting because it opened on Broadway in two thousand one, two thousand two it closed. And it went on a tour around the US. 2001, not a good year. Not a good year for Broadway. No. Um, 2003, it went on, an, it reopened as a US tour. Okay. So 2002 tour happened, then ended. Then 2003, they said, oh, we're going to start this again. 2004, it opened here at the Old Vic. Cool. Mm. Then 2005, the film came out. 2007, we get a UK tour. And then 2015, there was a revival tour. Nice. Yeah. But it's not really had a permanent home. No. Which is a weird one. But again, I think it's something similar to what I said about Once Upon a Mattress, that this being a comedy musical, or at least I assume it's a comedy musical, Mm. they are usually the ones that are harder to find an audience. Yeah. Because comedy is so subjective, you know, everyone has different tastes with it, mm-hmm. and what works for some maybe doesn't work for others. It's not something as timeless, potentially, as a Phantom of the Opera, as a Les Miserables. Yeah, I guess. Because those are stories that I think move people and resonate with people, whereas comedies are great, maybe they're one and done, you never see it again, but... Some shows you just have to go back and see. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So it ran for 2,502 performances, which is a lot Yeah. for this kind of show. And when it opened in 2001, it starred Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. Oh, cool. So they are the original cast and yeah, they've then that's taken the on this role. That's really cool. That's really awesome that they've then come back to this Yeah, to do product. the job which is very cool, and it won 12 Tonys. So it's a big deal, like it's a well-received There are 16 Tony categories, and the year that they were put in for it... It won three quarters of them. Yeah. Blimey. Yeah. So how has it not had more success at finding a permanent home? I, I mean... I have seen that there are other shows that you've shown me, like performances at the Tonys, that seem to be shows that have acclaim and an audience, but just don't ever see the light of day past their initial runs. Yeah. And I get that. There's all, you know so much on the market and limited space. Yeah. But it's always such a shame when you have something that is so well-received... Although, that being said, actually, a touring system is probably better in the long run because you get more visibility on your product and it's more accessible to everyone. If you think Broadway is New York yeah, and America is a big old place, mm-hmm. if you keep something in New York, you are going to limit your audience to tourists or citizens of New York. But if you take it on tour... You can expose the whole of America mm. to this. Yeah, I think that's and true. A touring model's better, so maybe it isn't an issue for a show like the producers. Also cheaper. Yeah. So more people are going to go and see it. Yeah. Do you want to know what it was up against for Tony Awards? So 2001. Yeah. So the producers won. It won Best Musical. 
Best musical, does it traditionally keep a lot of other musicals that might have been nominated in the past or gone, you know, been on stage for a long time, so presumably things like Phantom, if it's on, no. every year. So is there an amount of time that it's cut off? Is it Tony's just for the newer products? Yeah, so you have to... There's been a lot of controversy about it recently in the West End because to be eligible for a Tony Award... You told me this about how Les Mis is considered new because they've redone the staging. Yes, very irritatingly, which means it probably will win a bunch of categories up against new shows that should be winning. Yes. So to to be nominated for a Tony Award, or here you get an Olivier, you have to be within the last season. Okay. Or have opened within the last season. You have to have a new cast and a new set, costumes, everything has to be new. And you have to have, like, there's a couple of, like, subcategories, essentially. You have to fulfil all of the criteria to be eligible for being nominated for a Tony Award, which is why Les Mis recently, in the West End, redid their stage, they put... Blame is on as a concert instead of a stage show and they rebuilt the stage and now they've reopened again or they would be reopened again as a stage show and therefore are eligible for an Olivier, which is ridiculous in my opinion. I agree and I know, I think we spoke about this on Phantom. Yeah. And I, I, I do think there should be a best long-running musical mm. that does take into account to maybe how musicals adapt to the times that you yeah. then look at how have they gone from where, where they debuted to where they are now, and you should celebrate those achievements. Because putting Les Mis up against a brand new show doesn't seem fair. Yeah. Because you look at the lineup, and more people would have heard of Les Mis, so naturally that's got more credibility to win, but then you've got really good shows that deserve the praise that yeah. aren't going to get that. And having the Olivier Award or the Tony Award next to your name is such an important thing for a show in trying mm. to find its footing. Anyway, the the producers was up against Class Act, The Full Monty and Jane Eyre. So it wasn't a great year for musicals. No. I mean... Which is doing a disservice to the producers because it deserves the... Well, it's doing a disservice to all of them because... If it launched in 2001, I'm assuming this is the 2002 Tonys. No, it's the 2001 Tonys. Oh, really? Tonys are in the summer. Okay, so this predates 1911. Mm. I was thinking, obviously, that would have had a massive impact on the 2001 to 2002 season, so this launched before it. No, I didn't think about that. Both Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick were up for best performance by a leading actor in a musical. And who won after? I'm guessing Matthew Broderick. No, Nathan Lane. I like. See, I like Nathan Lane. Yeah. And I like Matthew Broderick, and I think it's really fun that they're in this together because they must have a good pre-existing relationship to bounce off of. Yeah. You know, they've known of each other. I don't know what they're like behind the scenes, but obviously, Timon and Simba, mm-hmm. which they then reprised for sequel. Mm-hmm. So they're obviously aware of each other. I don't know if their CVs stretch further back with more encounters. Nathan Lane is, a, is an actor that I don't often think gets a lot of praise. I love Nathan Lane. Have you ever seen Mousetrap? Yeah. It's great in Mousetrap. Mm-hmm. I really like Nathan Lane. I think he just brings a new level of energy to things. Yeah. 
I think there's a charm and an energy he brings. Yeah. Which you don't get in a lot of newer things. I think Josh Gad is maybe the closest to Nathan Lane nowadays. I guess. So, we jump forwards from 2001 to 2005. Mel Brooks has been asked if it could be made into a film, and he says yes. However, Susan Stroman's going to direct it. Same director. Yep. They kept the lyrics in the book, so still Mel Brooks, still Thomas Meehan. Meehan? Presumably the same length then, if they've kept the same songs, they've not cut anything out. Mm-hmm. And it was a box office flop. I remember it coming out. <laughs> do you? I do. I and do. it was something I wanted to see. 2005. How old were you in 2005? I was 15. Okay, I was 10 then. So I was either 14, depending on if it was January to March. I think it was December. So yeah, I'd have been, I'd have been year 11. Mm-hmm. I remember it coming out because I remember, this was my period of time I took media studies at school. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky that I was able to get a subscription to Empire magazine because we were able to justify it as media studies. Yeah. And I read it monthly. Mm-hmm. And there were features on the producers, and it really caught my eye because of your Matthew Broderick, your yeah. Will Ferrell. Mm-hmm. Will Ferrell was coming off 2004 Anchorman, and I watched Anchorman when I got it on DVD earlier that year. Yeah. And I fell in love with that film completely, and I fell in love with Will Ferrell as a performer. I won't say it's necessarily the same feelings now. I don't think he's as mm-hmm. marketable, but at the time, he was on his way to become one of the most marketable actors in Hollywood. So, I don't particularly like Will Ferrell. I know. Uh, there don't. are only two films that I like him in. This. This and Step Brothers. Yes. Because I think that film is genuinely funny. I have. N- I didn't like Anchorman. I don't like Blades of Glory. Which is fine. I... I'm crazy for these films. Yeah, I know. And it's your kind of comedy. Exactly. I'm not a big watcher of comedies. I wouldn't say that's particularly Which is why it's weird that this is something you really like. I love this film. But Musical comedy is a completely different story. If you put songs in, I'm here for it. It was on my radar because Will Ferrell was in it and I really wanted to see it. But I don't remember it coming to the cinema. Probably didn't. It's a weird one. So when it opened, it had a $45 million budget. Yeah. And it only made $38 million worldwide. Who was the distributor? Was it Universal? Uh, yeah, it was. He's... Interesting. Interesting that I got that on one. Universal Pictures and Columbia Pictures. December's a weird slot. It was released for... Christmas. Was it wide like... release, 25th of December. Yeah. Now, in England... Movie theatres aren't open on the 25th of December. No, but they are open on the 26th. Yes, and my family always goes to the cinema on Boxing Day to see something. We try and go to the ones with the big comfy seats, but we always go and see something on Boxing Day. Yeah. We did not go and see this. There's a chance it wasn't released here in the UK on that yeah, day. Because I, I know that happens was. quite a lot sometimes, that America gets that. I think Les Mis was released on Christmas Day, but then... It was early January here. Yeah, because we saw it for my brother's birthday. And it happens sometimes. But that's usually the start that most of these musicals are released in. 2005 mm-hmm. 
that's not a, the final Lord of the Rings came out in 2004 yeah so it's not there I don't know what competition it would have had in 2005 like in that December slot but I'm not going to be able to find out because I think googling Christmas movies 2005 is not going to be helpful no it'll be interesting I'll, I'll see if I can have a find something later on just my own you know, kind of interest. I guess this is probably a 12 to 15 rating. It's 12. It's 12. Which is surprising. 12. I think the only reason it's a 12 is because it's a musical. Yeah, 12A would have existed at the time in the UK. Perhaps it just, it's not as well known and maybe it hasn't had as much advertising thrown at it. But you'd think with the cast that they've got, because Uma Thurman wasn't in the stage show. Will Ferrell wasn't in the stage. No, and Uma Thurman is fairly hot off Kill Bill. Yeah. And we know who Will Ferrell is. We know who Will Nathan Ferrell is. Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, we know who they are. I don't understand why it didn't do well. Yeah. But then also, I can imagine this being one of the ones, because it's not got anything on it, to say it's a musical. I haven't seen the trailer for it. I didn't watch the trailer when I was doing my research, but... I can imagine this being one of those films that people went to see and then found out it was a musical and weren't happy with it. Oh, yeah. Like, I had that with the artist when I worked at Cineworld. Yeah. He told the story. <laughs> it's crazy. People don't know what they're getting in for. And it could just be as simple as bad word of mouth. Yeah. It could be as simple as other releases took priority. Hmm. We've seen in recent years with, you know, this, this Star Wars new trilogy they come out in that December slot. Yeah. There might have been something that December that basically took it out of contention, nobody cared about. Mm -hmm. There's a range of different things that it could be. Critically, though, how was the film received? Because, like I say, I'm aware Will Ferrell got a Golden Globe for it. So, critically, it did okay. It had very mixed reviews. Reviewers who knew about musicals i'm trying not to tell you anything specific yeah reviewers who know about musicals said that they liked it and that it was a good translation from stage to screen reviewers that are movie reviewers and not musical reviewers slated it and said that it was terrible which i think is a given so it's like cats kind yeah. of where people who are aware of cats mm -hmm. uh, enjoyed the film more than anyone else would have because they get musicals and they get that kind yeah. of process. Yeah, and it is one of those musicals that you have to understand how musicals work okay. for this to make sense. And you have to imagine you're watching it on a stage. So it's a good job we've looked at eight musicals over the past eight weeks. Yes. I'm more educated than I once was. Good. I'm glad. So. I think it's time to watch it. I think it's time to put on a show. Yeah. We'll be back very, very soon. Springtime for Hitler and Germany Deutschland is happy and gay We're marching to a faster pace 
Look out, here comes the master race. And we are back. We have watched the producers and now we're ready to talk about it. So, what did you think? That was a lot of fun. Good. I thought, I figured you'd enjoyed it because the way you were reacting to things. It definitely wasn't a 12. No, I, I, we were saying that while we were watching it. I don't know why it's rated a 12. It has to just be somebody looked at it and said, oh, it's a musical and just slapped a 12 on it. I think this is the thing. Obviously, people are going to have done their checks on it and whoever has watched it has watched it and has approved it as a 12. Mm. However, I am very much in the mindset that censorship's important to an extent. If I, as a parent, decide that my child is able to watch this stuff, that's mm -hmm. my decision to make. Yeah. And I would typically go into it with an informed decision that if my child said they went to play GTA and I had no idea what it was, I would do some research. Yeah. If I then choose to let my child play it, I can't complain when it's wrong, like when it's inappropriate. Yeah, my little cousins, who aren't so little anymore, yeah. but my little cousins watch horror movies yeah. that are rated higher than their age, but their parents make the informed decision. Yeah. Now, if I knew nothing about this show and I saw, and I saw it as a 12A mm. at the cinema... I'm not necessarily going to do much research on the matter because it looks fun. It's yeah. got a great cast and it's 12A. Mm -hmm. It's appropriate for them. I don't know who I would blame in that circumstance. Had I taken children to see it, would I blame myself or would I blame the other people? Is it my fault for not researching it first or should I trust the information that's been presented to me? I would do research. I would do research, but I think there would be parents who potentially took their, child's, their children to see that mm -hmm. and would have had very awkward conversations or awkward moments. I'm not complaining. This is very in line with my sense of humour. I think it's brilliant. I loved it. Yeah. But I think you've got to be very careful with ratings. You know, Book of Mormon, to its credit, says they don't allow under 16s. Yeah. Which I think is fair. Which, yeah, exactly, is fair. And How do they... How do they check? I don't know, because I happen to know some of the kids I teach have seen it. I guess so... it must just be visibly under 16. I mean, you know, like this was a year seven who right. seen it. Okay. So I reckon what I read was probably more a schools group thing. Mm. How do you police it? I don't know. But... I guess if they're there with parents, it's like you say... The parents are the one who, who are making an informed decision yeah. to let their child I see that. I absolutely cannot stand when people complain about something and say, well, this wasn't appropriate. You should do your research on it, first mm -hmm. and foremost. However, I can also understand the side perspective of when it's younger years, when it says this is acceptable for 12, it's like... Yeah. If this was an 18 and you've shown your child it, that's on you. Yeah. But as a 12, maybe it's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. But then there's things that nowadays that, so in, I can't remember what year it was, you probably know more about this than I do as a media person, but the rating system changed. For based video on, games? No, no, for films. Okay. Based on what was acceptable to be shown in films. So you used to be able to show people smoking. Yeah. And now in an under 
I think it's under 15 movie. You can't show anybody, any of the main characters smoking. Yeah. You can't have heroes smoking. And it also used to be you couldn't show somebody kill their significant other and get away with it. So movies change their endings based on these rules. Yeah. And then they changed more recently. And you are allowed to show certain, I don't know how to describe it, like a risque. Yeah more risque things within the rating system? I think you're allowed one use of certain swear words within 12s. You're allowed... I, I thought it was a 12A. 12s and 12A are the same thing. Are they? Yeah. The very first 12A film in the UK was Signs. Oh, really? Yes. And before it, you just had a blanket 12, which meant nobody under the age of 12 could see it. 12A, what that stands for... Nobody under the age of 12 can see this without an adult present. Oh, okay. So you would have to go with an adult to let you into a 12. Mm. This is me working at the cinema perspective that I knew for a fact that if there's an adult there, I'm allowed to let that child into a 12. No complaints, provided they are a parent. I couldn't have let you in at 14 with Jake as 11 Oh, right, okay. Because you don't have parental responsibility. Mm. That used to really annoy me. I remember, I think it was my birthday, actually. Yeah. I just turned 15, I guess. Yeah. And I'm a January baby, so a lot of my friends had already turned six, uh, 15. Yeah. We went to see a 15 movie, and the cinema refused to let us in because we didn't have ID. Yeah, that's also, I mean... How do you ID a 15-year-old? And it's something that I had great issue with when I was there because parents aren't necessarily allowed to vouch for it you can get really great schemes within schools that allow you to have like ID, ID cards. cards but also you'd accept passports who brings a passport or a birth certificate that's what we they had, said they said passport yeah. my dad was there and he got really mad before I started working at my current school just after I finished my training I went back to work at the cinema just for a month to build up money to move here yeah and in that time, in between as movie two and Purge two came out, Ooh. and it was so funny because kids I taught tried to come to the cinema. To watch <laughs> That's it. amazing. I know you're not that age. And <laughs> they'd booked in advance, yeah. and I said to the manager, "You can't let them in because they're underage." How do you know? I said, "Because I taught them. They Teased are them. year eight. And <laughs> oh, you're so mean. Yeah, well. <laughs> Please, if, sir, if, let us go and see our movie. But if a cinema is proven to be letting people in underage, mm. it can lose its licence. Which means you won't get the 15s, you won't get oh. the 18s, you'd be stuck with other ones, which means there's not enough choice for everyone. And at the end of the day, it's a law. Okay. We're going way off topic here. Yeah. Essentially, my point was, I really like the producers. I think the humour is absolutely amazing in it. I also really love the songs, the tongue-in-cheek elements of it all. Yeah. But this is in no way, shape or form a 12. No. Not in a bajillion years. No. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not complaining. It's an interesting aside. How this got passed as a 12, I would love to know. Yes, there's no nudity and there are sex references. Fine. Mm -hmm. There's not really any bad language. It's innuendo. Yeah. But... The innuendo is not necessarily that subtle at times. It's not subtle at all. Yeah. And also the... Basically, we'll talk about... I'll get Danny to do a plot review of this movie in a second, but the, the majority of this movie is jokes about Hitler. 
and about the Second World War and the Nazis, and a lot of it is tongue-in-cheek, but then you have one character who is a Nazi, who is making statements supporting that, and I think that should have raised the... Well, I think, I, I kind of was thinking about, like, how is this okay? Yeah. And then I did realise that you've got three very prominent Jewish people involved in this. Mm-hmm. Mel, Brooks, Mel Brooks is Jewish. Yeah. I believe that Matthew Broderick's mother was Jewish. I don't know. And Nathan Lane's Jewish. Okay. So is it okay for that kind of humour if they're involved? I would assume so because they originated. Yeah, and that's that's kind of my point is it's like I don't have any right to feel uncomfortable with it because if they're willing to do this tongue-in-cheek humour over it... Yeah. Why why shouldn't it be okay? In the same way, I turned to you and I did say that when it came to keep it gay. Yeah. Are the actors actually gay? Were the actors actually gay? And yes, they are. And that to me makes it okay. Because it's it's still tongue in cheek and it's still parody and satire, but you've it's not... being portrayed by the people that you are making fun of. Exactly. And I can get on board with that more so than if it was Bruce Willis doing that. Yeah. Like, the random thing... name. But if you had a very prominent straight actor or actress doing that, yeah, it's not okay. The thing I will say is that everybody has their own right to their opinion about this. Yes. Obviously, we are just saying how we feel about it. I'm sure there are people who are really offended by this film. And I can completely understand why. Especially if you've gone into this not knowing what it's about or what happens. Yes. However, that is a part of the plot yeah. of the movie, is that when they put on, jumping way ahead and into the actual film, when they put on their horrible, terrible play about Hitler, the audience are completely upset and offended by it and yeah. people start walking out until they realise we're taking the mickey they're taking the mick and it is a joke yeah and that's how I think this is okay because yeah. you have got people of different denominations that have every right to stand up and say I'm offended by this who don't mm-hmm. I think it's along the same lines of did you we never saw Jojo Rabbit did we no but I saw an interview with Taika Waititi who plays Hitler in that, and he was saying that we have every right as human beings to completely take the mick out of Hitler because why should we, like, do anything else is sort of revering him? And that we should be taking the mick out of him because he was a terrible, horrible person. And I do think it's one of those really important ones that we remember Mm -hmm. just because, yes, horrible things happened, but I've always said the only way that we'll learn from history not to repeat it is to learn about history. Yeah. And even if we're learning about it through parody, Mm -hmm. we're still keeping that history alive without revering it. Yeah, and that is something that's very, very important. We're going to come to a a, a year sooner rather than later. We're, we're creeping up on the point where there won't be as many people left alive to talk about World War Two yeah. as there are now, and eventually it will just be history and historical representations. And art is important in keeping that alive. I think. Hmm. Think piece over. 
Yes. Would you like to explain the plot of this film? Because while we were watching this, there were a couple of brilliant moments where you were guessing what was going to happen <laughs> and where the plot was going. Yeah. You've essentially got Broadway in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. I've deduced that because we see on opening night of springtime for Hitler, mm-hmm. we actually see My Fair Lady with Rex Harris and Julie Andrews. Yep. We also see West Side Story. A movie, uh, show posters. The show posters, yeah. We've got all these different posters that suggest world building, which for me is great. This is set in the real world. Mm-hmm. So much so that you have these actually historically accurate depictions. Yeah. So this is set in 1956. And you have got Funny Boy, a comedy musical <laughs> of Hamlet. Which is, I think, one of the best jokes in this. Especially because Lion King is Hamlet. One also Funny Girl. I've not seen Funny Girl. Funny Girl is a musical with Barbara Streisand. I only know a Funny Girl because of Rachel Berry in Glee. Which is, that's fine. Yeah, because she goes on to be Funny Funny Girl. Girl. Yeah. And hijinks, I I assume, ensue. Yeah. Is that the one that says, don't tell me not to fly, I simply gotta call. But this is Funny Boy, the comedy musical of Hamlet, and we get a brilliant introduction to Max. It's the worst show in town we've seen crap but never like this yep and they make him a the best marquee poster ever yeah that flicks between opening and closing night so he was a theater producer who i guess has had heights but is now at the lows of his career and he's just trying anything and i really liked seeing the different shows in the background so he had like king lear so at one point he must have been great if he was doing shakespeare no what? King Lear, L-E-E-R. Oh. That was the point. And when... I didn't get the spelling. When Ula walks into their office for the first time, his eyes follow her. The poster's eyes move and they follow her. Oh. It's King Lear. He's leering. I didn't see that. I didn't right, Okay. That. Okay, so... That's was... what that joke is. <laughs> but we also get something called The Breaking Wind and Bialy Who's of 42. Mm-hmm. So he's had some success, but he's now at the tail end. Yeah. And in comes Leo Bloom, who is an accountant. Yes. There to balance the books. And he realises, oh, you, you took $2,000. Yeah. You've been doing something. You're cooking the books. I can't do this. I'm sorry. And then he realises that the easiest way to make money is to create a flop. Mm-hmm. So that's what they set out to do. But Leo's having no part of it because it's illegal. And it Leo's illegal. kind of a wet blanket, ironically. Yes, because he carries around with him his blue blanket. Which is very cute and very weird at times. Yeah. And it makes so many different cameos and and appearances during... I say cameos. It makes so many different appearances as different things throughout. I love it. It it The blue blanket. Yeah. Yeah. So, essentially, Leo has always had a secret desire to be a producer. Mm -hmm. And with this scheme in mind... Max is manipulating him and he says no I'm not interested I'm not going to do something illegal but he's bored with the monotony of real life and he joins up and they set about making the very worst musical of all time yeah which is Springtime, Springtime for, for Hitler. Hitler written by a Nazi yes who is pre- kind of pretending not to be a Nazi but is very clearly oh yeah a Nazi. and he keeps saying things that shows he was a Nazi and yeah 
if this world is 1956-ish, like I've figured it out to be, mm-hmm. he would have he would have been a Nazi. Like the, the timeline things up. I thought maybe this was set more modern at first. Yeah. And I wondered how has he survived? I did think at one point, because obviously when they find the book, Springtime for Hitler, yes. I was thinking, oh my God, is he Hitler? And has he just written like an autobiographical piece that's oh, trying, to, yeah. trying to de-villainise him? They didn't go that way. No, I'm glad they didn't. Thankfully. And it turns out this show is a hit. Yep. Thanks. Accidentally. Thanks mostly, I think, to your favourite <laughs> We finally figured out who my favourite theatre performer is. It is Captain John Barron. Yes. Oh my God. So, I can't believe we spent a week of saying, guess who it is, guess who it is, and you didn't once think of John Barrowman. I know, I am ashamed. <laughs> I am truly ashamed. And John Barrowman, I am sorry. <laughs> I still would love to be your best friend. I'm sorry I didn't think of you for this. And I promise that exclusively for the next week, I will think only of you at all times. <laughs> Me too. So... It turns out to be a success, and obviously things go a little south from there. That's mm-hmm. kind of the overarching plot. Yeah. It just, it flowed so well. Doesn't it? It's so good. And the interplay between Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane is is so amazing. It's what makes this film, is the way they bounce off each other. Mm. It's really interesting, you know, seeing kind of the trajectory of Matthew Broderick's career. Yeah. Because I guess most people famously know him as Ferris Ferris Bueller. Bueller. Yeah. And Ferris Bueller is cool. Yeah. Matthew Broderick is not cool. But Matthew Broderick (laughs) is not cool. (laughs) Matthew Broderick's a bit of a dweeb. And it's really fun, especially if you sold this to people as Ferris Bueller in a musical. People would be like, oh, cool. He's completely opposite of Ferris Bueller in this. Yeah. He's and there's neurotic some, and stressed for the entire show. But there's also some very weird moments where he looks at the audience like Ferris Bueller would. Yes. And I so, imagine that this is maybe what happened to Ferris Bueller, like, after high school. He, he got sucked into being an accountant. The um, So, one of the things that people talk about a lot when they talk about the change of this from stage to screen mm. is that some of the gags don't work specifically where he's looking at the audience. Yeah. Because when you've got a a real audience in front of you, you can interact with them, and that's what they did in the show. There was a lot of audience interaction. Yeah. Turning to the audience and being like, can you believe this? And talking to people. Yes, because she said something, Ula said something about going down screen right. Yes. Why Ula says, why Leo goes so far screen right? That joke isn't funny in the film. No, it was... In the stage show, she looks at him and says, why does Leo go so far downstage left? And that's funny. Yeah, it was one of those weird moments because there's been no other kind of meta humour like that so far. In the stage show, there is. Yeah, I didn't mind it so much, but... I think it's... They just shouldn't have kept that one. Like, we could have lived without it. Yeah. I like it. I I like the whole show, but... And it is... It is so much fun, but it is, you know, the choreography during We Can Do It, like the interplay between the two characters essentially sets up your 
chalk and cheese dynamic. Mm-hmm. We established that Matthew Broderick is a fish out of water, mm-hmm. but he's got his secret desires and he's going to be easily manipulated. Yeah. Do you know that they're, um, they're Walk of Fame handprints are next to each other? Really? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. No, they, I, I did really like it. And then we have numbers like, I want to be a producer. Oh, you loved that. Which I did call unhappy because that's what I thought it was at first. Yeah. John Lovitz is great. I love... Is that his boss? Yeah. Yeah. I love John Lovitz. But the mise-en-scene for that scene was just brilliant. Having all these desks. I can imagine that their boss would have measured the desks out with a ruler to keep Mm -hmm. them perfect length. Two feet apart. Yeah, two feet apart, (laughs) socially distanced. And the dressing of that scene was... uh, amazing Mm -hmm. and then when he starts having his fantasy and they pull out and become a stage of lighting and I remember that when we watched Joseph you said that that was your perfect way to do a musical adaptation is to have moments that are stage stage. yeah and the producers has several moments like this you know this sequence here the sequence in the jail cell later later on Mm -hmm. Obviously, springtime for Hitler. Yeah, has so many of those moments. I I would say perhaps the weakest scene is the courtroom scene. Yeah, because it looks real. It doesn't look like a set. It doesn't look like a stage space. Mm-hmm. So in the stage show, uh, Max's office turns into the courtroom. Mm-hmm. So it's got just I think it's got two walls. It's got one long wall, which is where the windows are. In the film, and then a flat wall where the um, where his desk is, yeah. and the desk becomes the judge's seat, and the flat the flat wall becomes the jury, yeah. and then all the little old ladies are just kind of around, and it is a versatile set. Whereas in this, you're jumping from place to place and going to an actual courtroom, but you have to with the way this movie's made. You do, but unfortunately. They sing such a nice song as well, but it's yeah. just kind of bland because nothing's happening compared to the whole rest Although of Although we do have one of my favourite jokes in that scene, and I can imagine it translates really well on stage, is when Max tries to leave the courtroom, and, he walks see, stage, and yeah. then nothing happens and he comes back on with the police, with the police holding him up. Yeah, and that is funny. I think in the show, from clips I've seen of Nathan Lane, he walks, tries to walk out into the audience and ushers stop him. <laughs> and I'm oh, like, wow. no. Oh, that's so <laughs> Back good. up onto the stage with you. Yeah. So in the scene we're talking about, they sing, I want to be a producer. And then we come back to the real world suddenly. And we have suddenly diegetic sounds. Yes. We talked about this last week. Do you want to explain what diegetic and non-diegetic Okay, I do are? struggle with this, which is really bad considering it's my job to explain this. Yes. But non-diegetic sound is sound that, doesn't happen within the world yes and diegetic sound is sound that everyone else can hear mm-hmm. so if i was to start playing music right now from my phone and you could hear it as diegetic sound but if yep. this was a musical and i was going to sing an aside about how much do i love thee yeah that would be me standing up and in that world it's non-diegetic so it's mm-hmm. a soliloquy so one of my favorite jokes in beetlejuice the musical is that they're singing Fright of Their Lives and Beetlejuice is trying to explain to the the couple that he's helping become scary ghosts how to be scary ghosts. And he starts singing an aside, which is 
basically just insulting them and they say, excuse me, Mr. Beetlejuice, we can kind of hear you. Well, this is a soliloquy. So you're the one that's being rude. And stupid. Yeah, which is, so, like, he hasn't realised that his sound is diegetic, essentially. Yes. He thinks it's a non-diegetic aside, but... And it's interesting because you've gone from suddenly diegetic to non-diegetic. Mm -hmm. I can kind of reason with it that maybe this is still a sequence within Bloom's mind. You know how everyone always imagines when they quit, they're going to go out. Or what it's actually going to be like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there have been videos online where somebody bought a full marching band to give his notice to his boss. And the boss is just there, like, unimpressed. And I wonder if this is still in his head. He's just given his notice and now it's in his head and everyone's applauding for him. Because especially you have the fake cigar gag from John Lovitz. Oh, when the door gets slammed on it. Yeah. So maybe... Is that what that joke is or has it exploded? I think it's exploded. Right. Either way, potentially work. it's a non-diegetic scene still. It just looks diegetic because now his... It's in his imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Either way, you can make of that scene what you want it to be. Mm. But then when he goes to Max, we get a lovely reprise and a mashup of the previous two songs. It. We can do it and I want to be a producer. Yeah, I like that. I like, it's one of the things, I'm not a big Lehman's fan, but The Confrontation is an mm. excellent song. I like songs where two characters are singing their own yes. songs against each other. Out of curiosity, have you ever seen the video online of Neil Patrick Harris and Jason Segal singing Confrontation with each other? I've seen everything Neil Patrick Harris has ever done. It's just amazing. I love it. It's mm -hmm. a complete aside. I'll tell you what. If they were to ever remake this... This? Yeah, the producers. The producers not them is. How much would you love Jason Segal and Neil Patrick Harris? I think they're too old. Let's ignore age. I'm assuming that Neil Patrick Harris is Leo. Yeah. All right. I think they, they bounce off each other brilliantly. Okay. Dreamcasting. I, I would love to see that. If they ever to do it again. Sure. I'd like to see that staging of it. So, back into the plot. They find the worst <laughs> book ever. Yeah, they're looking for all these scripts and we get oh, you a loved this joke. Kafka and Burkhoff joke as yep. he picks up Metamorphosis and starts reading it. He goes, this is too good. And mm -hmm. it is true. Metamorphosis is such a good play. Mm -hmm. Oh, I <laughs> love it. Me too. But yes, they then find the very worst musical. You know one of your year tens has been reading that? We teach it. Do you? Yeah. Cool. I absolutely adore that. We do lessons on how to become Gregor. Hmm. Yeah, it's such a good play. Shout out to if the year tens are listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> Hi guys. If you are the year 10 who is listening to this, who is reading Metamorphosis, keep it up and let me know your thoughts. Mm -hmm. So they find the very worst play ever, Franz Liebkin, yes. which is Will Ferrell. Who has written a play called Springtime for Hitler. Now he actually is a Nazi. Yes. And I thought it was more a case of he was an actor who played a Nazi on stage. No, he actually is. Nazi. And he is sending a pigeon to Argentina with yeah. some kind of encrypted message for Lord only knows who. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got my conspiracy theories on the matter, which I explained to you. I don't like it. But 
he's then overjoyed, uh, but also kind of on alert. I'm not actually a Nazi. We're going to do springtime for you know who. Mm. Is this a very Potter musical? I'd watch that version. Oh, I just want to cut in and say the pigeon that he is talking to, the noises that the pigeon is making are made by Mel Brooks. Yes. Because and why not? The puppets were made. Frank Oz. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very cool. And we get Chim Germany Chiru. Because they're on a roof. They're on a roof. Mm. I'm going to say, like now, I loved all the soundtrack for this. Right. And you're going to ask me what my least Except favorite song this is. One song. You're going to ask me what my least favorite song is. It's going to be either this or Haben Sie Gehot des Deutschband. I oh, liked yeah. both, both of those songs. I liked both of them. However, I think two of these songs in the show is too much. Choose one. They are the shortest songs, though. They are, but I think... And I think the second one. I'm not even going to attempt to... to Haben Sie Gehot des Deutschband. Yeah, that song is his audition song to play Hitler. It's fine. Yeah. I understand it in the scene that it's in. I w- wish it was shorter. It's only one minute nineteen. It could be shorter. I understand both of them. Yeah. I liked them. I think the first one's necessary. Yeah, I liked them, but I think two of them is too much. Mm. Have one. It's one of those ones where I think maybe the joke isn't as good being repeated. Yeah, fair enough. And then. <sighs> They they do this song and the fun thing is like when they're putting their fingers up in the air, how they transition to the middle fingers and when Will Ferrell looks goes back to the other fingers. Yes, because they're not agreeing with him. They're being they're tricking Will Ferrell's character into thinking that they agree with him when they don't because they just want to monetize on his terrible yeah. script. And this is when I kind of started thinking as well. Surely they must be okay with it because given their Jewish roots. They wouldn't emblazon themselves with a swastika if they felt it was inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, This scene also has a joke from (laughs) the musical. So in the stage production, when they first, one of the first times they were on Broadway, they were acting this scene and Nathan Lane's character goes to open the door because they're on a rooftop and the door doesn't open and he says, help, we're stuck. We're stuck on a roof with a crazy Nazi. That joke is in there because in the stage show, one of the nights, a stagehand just locked the door <laughs> and they got stuck and he was pulling on the door and a stagehand ran around and unlocked it from the other side. It's obviously just a bolt or something to yeah. stop it from flying open. But um, they kept it in. Yeah. And then they put it in the film. No, I like it. I think it's a really funny joke, especially because he's so calm and collected and you see him suddenly not calm and collected. It works. Yeah. And then from here, we... We, we meet Roger. Well, Roger there's two Elizabeth. Rogers that we meet because the actor <laughs> is... One, one of the actors is Roger Bart, who has been George on Desperate Housewives. Mm-hmm. I got kind of shell-shocked a little bit watching. I recognised him and it suddenly dawned on me he was... In Desperate Housewives, he's also young Hercules' singing voice in mm. the the Disney adaptation. So that was fun to see a different side of yes of Roger Bart. Do you know what his character name is? I think it was Carmen. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's it, for me it's funny because 
he keeps calling out Roger and he's calling out his own name, which for me just got really funny. So we had the two Rogers mm. and I'm thinking, why do they still have their Nazi armbands on? Like, why are you walking around yeah. New York with that on? And they get a little bit, oh, that's... that's Let's not talk about it. It's just hide yeah. them, put them away. They forget. They forgot that they had them on. So they go. They've gone to Roger's house to, because he's a terrible Broadway director. They've gone to ask him if he will direct Springtime for Hitler, and he has his own creative team. So he's got a costume designer, a lighting designer, a set designer, a, a and a choreographer with the biggest jockstrap. Jockstrap in the world. Yes. You know, dance cup depends the dance belt. So they've seen Funny Boy the musical and they loved it. They especially loved to be or not to be song. Yeah. Which I think is hilarious. Yep. And we sing Keep It Gay. Mm-hmm. I love which that song. has a really good sound of music reference yeah. as they come down the stairs to meet them. Mm-hmm. You, one of your favourite jokes is the final reveal of his creative team. Yes. So he he introduces his whole creative team and they come down the stairs and it's all these very camp kind of younger men. And then he says, and my lighting designer, Leslie or Shelby or something. It's an androgynous name. And then she comes down the stairs and it's a very butch lesbian woman who is not enjoying being in this house. Clearly, she lives with all of these really flamboyant gay men and hates every minute of it. And I love her. And they're not going to get Roger on side because this is maybe too depressing. Mm-hmm. And Also, he needs buttering up. He does need buttering up. And Max is going to butter him up in the form of Leo. Yeah, because he fancies him. We have a really good exchange where he asks what your perfume is. Oh, yeah, that joke's weird. Leo says it's not perfume, that's my natural smell. And... Roger replies, you mean that smell is you? Oh, I'd love to just bottle it up and spray that deodorant on me all the time. He says, I'd love to bottle you and rub you under my arms every day. It's a very weird exchange. (laughs) It's like flirting, I guess. Leo goes back caressing himself with his blanket. And it looks like they've lost everything when Max says, but Roger, think of the Tony. Tony, 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 Tony. I love that the... um, you think this is how they got 12 Tonys? No, One Tony for every time they said show. it. The stage show. The stage show would have already got them. This, that's what I mean. The stage show would have presumably had that lyric in that moment. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, probably. But do they that... get a Tony for every time they said it? No, because they only say it four times. Well, they want 12 three, Tonys. three Tonys for every time they say it. Um, <laughs> when they do that, Tony, 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 Carmen, who was stood at the front, is holding a little round mirror yeah. and he spins it round because the top of Tony Awards is a spinning coin, silver coin, and you can spin it. And so he's pretending to hold one. That is great. That's how the that's how you get it. Yeah, basically. One of my favourite recurring jokes throughout this is I think we're into deep. No, we're not into deep. I'll tell I'll you when we're into, into deep. deep. Yeah. Uh, we then meet Ula. Yes. You want Ula make audition? But we've already met Ula, haven't we? When did we? Oh, yes, because Max had been leering on Ula as she yeah. left, and she's been inspired by his leering to create her audition song about him. Mm. He Earlier in the, the film, we see him leering over his balcony, and he catcalls a woman as she gets out of a taxi. Yeah. 
and it turns out to have been Uma. I cannot remember ever seeing this side of Uma Thurman before, and I love it. What do you mean? Like, this kind of OTT, exaggerated, silly Uma Thurman. Yeah, I it's... don't know that I've seen her in anything other than Kill Bill. So, Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill. I haven't seen Pulp Fiction. She's also in My Super Ex-Girlfriend, where she's a superhero. Oh. And someone dumps her and she goes crazy. But it's really fun, and I'm sure there's other films where she has this OTT side of her. Mm. But it's really nice to see it. It was refreshing. I've not seen that side of her before. You told me halfway through, because you want to do some research, did she actually sing? And you found out she did. She does, yeah. But you also found out who was potentially the alternate casting. Yeah, so they, they were looking at casting Nicole Kidman to play Ula, but she was filming... Australia? Something. Yeah, at the same time. She was doing another Baz Luhrmann oh, film. Oh no, Mulan she was offered the role. Yeah. Matthew Broderick offered her the role. Oh. Yeah. While they were filming Stepford Wives. Oh, I love Stepford Wives. I haven't seen it. Oh, I bet it's not I only, <laughs> I only know about it because of the X-Men. But she said yes without ever seeing the script. And then backed out because she felt like she was working too much at the time. Fair. So. you got to give it to people, you know. Obviously, we've just found out earlier this week that Ruby Rose quit as Batwoman. And it's come out since then. It was the working hours. And I think you've got to give it to actors when they decide this is mm. too much for me. That that's really important that people can say no and yeah. think of their own physical and mental health. I don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but if someone's stepping out saying it's too much hours for me, great. You know, do what's best for you. Yeah. Because the product will deteriorate if it's too much. If we had a burnt out Nicole Kidman in this, it might not have been as fun. Mm. Her song ends. Yep. Her terrible when you got accent. it flaunt it, and Max says to her, "I want you to know that even though we're sitting, we are giving you a standing ovation." Yes. <laughs> What's that song from Beetlejuice? Creepy old. Creepy old guy. Creepy old guy. Yep. That could be a song from so, the producers. This is what I meant when when we were just talking about Neil Patrick Harris and Jason Scott. I always just want to call him Marshall. I know. The the age difference between Max and Leo probably isn't that much. No. However, Nathan Lane has a comb over in this movie and he shaved the top of his head yeah. so that he could comb his hair over. He doesn't have a bald spot. No, I know. He it's it's actually, commitment to it. Yeah, that's crazy. But I think it does do a good job of making him this sort of old, lecherous, older, lecherous man. I do. Whereas Leo is quite young. Yeah, and I, I do kind of have to say that I can completely see why Nathan Lane won the Tony over Matthew Broderick. He seem he does a lot. I feel bad saying that. No, Matthew they both Broderick... do a lot. They both do a lot, but I do think Nathan Lane's character does, I guess, so much more. And I'll talk about it later on. Mm. That especially is why I think he deserves it. But he also has more songs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he does a lot with the, the role, which is really good. And his character kind of does evolve and shows different notes. And I think Matthew Broderick's character, not kind of a slight of Matthew Broderick, but Leo kind of stays the same. He's yeah. He's always a kind of wet blanket. He locks into more things. He gets confident for maybe a scene. Yeah. 
and then loses it again. So we, she sings when you got it flaunt it, and then we find out the way that Max Bialystok gets all of his money from his investors is from very old ladies. Well, we already knew that because we saw it in the opening scene with his wardrobe of lovers. Yeah, but, but they we didn't have... quite understand the full extent of it until we have the longest line of old ladies. But they have some of the best names. They do. Whilst you're kind of finding some of the names, yeah. I love the synchronised Zimmer frames mm-hmm. that then become like the tap dancing. It's such a good parody of musical theatre conventions. Yeah. You know, taking the same sound effect but using a different kind of material to do it. And I really like the Busby Berkeley dancing throwback with the aerial shot of the ladies on their Zimmer frames. Oh, yeah. There and... are a lot of classical Hollywood musical references in this show which is just so much fun mm-hmm. my favorite thing about that scene is that not all of them they didn't have a big enough cast of women to play all the old ladies yeah. and i think this happens a lot in musicals is you just use your ensemble cast for everything but the majority of those old ladies are men i honestly full-heartedly believe that nathan lane's character has male lovers in this as well yeah he doesn't seem like he enjoys no, because... He fancies Ula, but yeah. he doesn't enjoy his dalliances. No, his because babies, he knows that it's fair. money. But yeah. I'm fully willing to believe that he has also got male lovers. Yeah. And I assume after Along Came Bialy, mm-hmm. it's Act 1 is done. That is a interval number. Yeah. And so some of the names of them... Yeah. There's only two that have official names... Hands which off, is, don't touch. <laughs> well, the first one we meet is Hold Me, Touch Me. Mm-hmm. And then the other two are Lick Me, Bite Me and Kiss Me, Feel Me. Which I think is quite funny. Basically rejects from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, basically. So we come back mm-hmm. to Act 2. We go back into the office and it is now white. Yeah. And it looks better. I, I agree with that. I really like it. I'm sad that the posters have been covered up. <laughs> she, she So they asked Ula if she would do some cleaning up around the office and she didn't understand what cleaning up meant. And they said, to try and explain it, they said to make it clean. And obviously she's, I don't know whether this is the stereotype, but she's Swedish. Ikea furniture. Ikea furniture. It's all white. So she paints everything white. Which I think is hilarious. It is good. Even the safe, and she paints over the numbers on the safe. Yes, and she paints the inside of the safe. This is one of my favourite set pieces, is when they then do their dance, you have the blue fade. Yes. And this was very classic Hollywood, almost what I imagine a Gene Kelly kind of dance number to be. That's exactly what I was thinking. And obviously... Matthew Broderick kind of doesn't have anything on Gene Kelly. No, but he did very However, well. his lines and his legs, the way he's dancing, and he's not a tall man, especially next to Uma Thurman. Who is wearing heels to make it even worse. Mm, she's wearing the Dukas, which yeah. is a very expensive brand of dance shoe. But he he's a very good dancer. And he had really, really good posture. He's doing a good job of leading her rather than her leading Mm -hmm. him. It just, I really like that dancing. Then the red fade showed this kind of passion behind the sofa's great. (laughs) 
they have kind of a weird throw about with their bodies and heaving themselves back up onto the couch and mm-hmm. one of the old ladies shows back up. Yep. And And then he throws away his blue blanket. Yes. Because he's a confident man he's now. He's confident. <laughs> and we cut to the audition for Hitler and Hitlarity ensues. Yeah. <laughs> so they have a couple of people come and audition with a great little dance montage too. Yeah. Which is a, a chorus line reference. But you have two singers who come forward to audition to be Hitler. Yes. And then Will... Ferrell is Ferrell. just like, no, this is offensive. This yeah. is not what my Führer should be. He gets really upset with the way that they're representing Hitler because they're being a bit meek. Yes. And Max shouts, we found our Hitler. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, probably because they want it to be as bad as possible. Yep. And we cut... We cut to opening night. Opening night. Which is very quick. I was kind of expecting it to be more rehearsals and Yeah, even if there was like a little montage. And I turned to you and I said, oh God, their gamble's not going to pay off. This is going to be well received. And you just said, wait and watch. And yeah. So this is the, you you guessed this, I think. You could tell in the run yeah. up to it. But I, I, I really liked that as they panned down to show the theatre, <laughs> they're checking the opening, closing Oh, to works. make sure that it works. You said it was a real theatre. Yeah, the Schubert Theatre is on Broadway. Which is awesome. And again, I love that. It's more historical world building. Mm-hmm. This isn't set in some kind of alternate reality New York. This is our New York. Yeah, and it's I set love realistically. That. I like the whole thing, the whole song, Don't Say Good Luck. You never say good luck on opening night. So Max spends the entire time saying good luck to everybody he possibly can. In the hopes of jinxing With it. With all these different superstitions. So he breaks a mirror, he's walking under ladders as yep. black cats. I love when people reference the break a leg in theatre. One mm-hmm. of my favourite episodes of The Simpsons is they go to England. Right. And Ian McKellen is a guest voice in it. And right. he's in Macbeth. And The Simpsons are interacting with him saying, oh, good luck in Macbeth. And he's going on and on about how you can't say good luck and you can't say Macbeth and they keep saying Macbeth and then the theatre crumbles and falls on him. Yeah. And I love the jokes about the superstition and I really enjoyed that there was a whole song about it. And especially because Max is trying to curse them because he wants this show to go badly. Yeah. And the curse pays off because Will Ferrell breaks his leg. Do you know where that comes from? No. Break a leg. Apparently, according to this... It comes from Lincoln's assassination. That would make sense. So in 1865... The most cursed performance ever. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth, who was an actor, and he leapt from the box that Lincoln was in onto the stage and shattered his leg in the process. Because that's what happens if you jump from a box to the theatre stage. However, that could just be a myth. Could be a myth, but... So, who knows? I could establish that. I could as... be, I'm willing to believe that. I like that. <laughs> Roger's sparkly suit is brilliant. Yeah. I adore it. And so, the costuming for this show is amazing mm, throughout. They spend a whole song saying good luck to everyone and talking about how, ba- how much bad luck that is. And then they finally say, break a leg to their Hitler, to Will Ferrell. And, and he breaks. falls and breaks his leg. <laughs> And, oh no, we don't have a Hitler and he doesn't have an understudy. Who's going to play him? Rogers. Yes, he is. This... Which I think 
changes the show. Oh God, completely, because it would not be, it, their plan would have worked. And I like the fact it's Max's hubris mm-hmm. at trying to make it so close, to try and do everything that backfires on him. Had he just left it all, it probably would have been yeah. fine. Yeah. The set for Springtime for Hitler is amazing. Yeah. Honestly. And John Barrowman. Oh my God. Oh, what a hunk. <laughs> we, we've not done... You love him just as much as I do. We have not done hunk of the show. John Barrowman is a hunk of the show. Oh man, his blonde hair. It's weird, isn't it? It's like it white him. hair. This is the thing. He's got white hair right now and it's really handsome. This would have been just off the heels of his debut in Doctor Who. Yeah, 2005. Which I think is great that, you know, his profile's rising and he's agreed to do this because he's he doesn't take himself seriously. No. And he you can see he's having a great oh, time. Yes, and that makes it so much more fun. Now, I was very lucky that last year I got to meet him at NFCC. Yeah. He's so funny. Oh, he's brilliant. So he signed the Captain Jack Harkness Pop Funko figure. Mm-hmm. He signed it twice, one from John Barrowman and one with Jack Harkness's signature, which That's is cool. amazing. And as he finished signing it, mm-hmm. he was blowing on the ink to dry. He looked me dead in the eyes. He said, do you know what I've just realised? I've been doing this all day and I've got to stop blowing myself. <laughs> That's so awful. <laughs> John Barrowman is He's a so cool. special kind of talent. I've been to a couple of his concerts and one of them... My aunt took me to see it, and at the end of the concert, we went and waited for him outside. And I was like 12 or 13, and I tripped and headbutted him in the stomach. <laughs> and then he gave me a hug. So I was pretty happy. He's got a amazing musical theatre CV. Yeah. He was Danny Zuko at one point. Mm-hmm. He was the Beast. He was the Beast at one point. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what role I'd love to see him do. Gaston? No, Frankenfurter. Um, He'd have so much fun with that. Yeah, he would. And, you know, we get I to see him he's dressed like that. He loves drag. He does. He was, he was in Priscilla a couple of times. Yeah, and also very much a big part of what made the Andrew Lloyd Webber BBC shows work. Yeah. I remember watching the... Um, this is just a tangent where we talk about how much we love John Barrowman. I love the... Which one was it where he kissed everyone? I think it was The Sound of Music. They did like a screen Like screen test. testing the different Yeah, where he Maria's. was supposed to be the captain and they were being Maria and they had to kiss. And I remember he kissed someone and there was like just dead silence on the screen yeah. while they kissed. And I was just like, why are we doing this? Why is this happening? It was so strange. Probably because the Maria's had requested, let, let us kiss let John Let us all kiss John Barrowman. Do you yeah. know, he had the very first gay kiss on BBC. I do, yeah. Which I think is amazing. With Christopher Eccleston. Yeah, and it, I, you know, I was 14 when that season of Doctor Who aired, and it... That was my RE textbook at really? school. Yeah. It wasn't even made up to be a big deal. It was just, this is okay. Mm-hmm. This is perfectly normal, which it is. Yeah, but and that's really nice to see, as a kid especially. Yeah, because you're normalising something that is normal but mm-hmm. has been demonised yeah. or mocked in the past. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to get back onto the producers, yeah. he is having such a whale of a time on stage here. Mm-hmm. He looks 
so good in a Nazi uniform. I think it's just the uniform. I don't think it's because it's the Nazi one. I it, hope it's not. It, it, no, it's not. But he... And his singing voice at this time, like, the reason he, the character that he's playing is called... His credit is tenor singer. Yeah. It's, it's supposed to be Stormtrooper tenor singer, yeah. but I think for the credits they just put tenor singer. But, oh, his singing voice is amazing, and this is him at his peak mm. singing voice because he's young here. And yeah. he's still amazing now, but oh no, my I god, know. the like crispness of his voice is amazing, and he sounds great. He does, and he's having a great time doing the the little tap dance section as yeah. well. Yeah, I was disappointed he wasn't in it more from this point. No. I could have done. With you said that to me a lot more, John Barrowman. Yeah, he looked so disappointed when Rogers turned and kissed Ula. He did as well. Yeah, and he when they throw the roses up to Roger, he kind of. Dodges because they nearly hit him. It was great. He was just he's such a a focus puller. I think. Oh yeah. You put him anywhere. That's who you're watching. Yeah. Because he has so much. He radiates energy. I think. He. We love you, Tom (laughs) Brown. But one of the other things I love is you've got another Mel Brooks cameo. Yes. There's a during (laughs) springtime for Hitler. A character comes on stage and says, don't be stupid, be a smarty, come and join the Nazi party. And this is the point at which people start walking out. Yeah, so people have shocked looks on their faces, understandably so, and people are leaving, and Max and Leo are hiding their faces behind the playbill, but then when they drop it, they're thrilled. And I was thinking, like, honestly, though, what makes an actor take a job like this? In this canon, taking a job like this, where they would have seen the more serious Hitler representation. Mm. I, I love that it's great that actors will take any job. Yeah. And then Rogers comes out as Hitler and the audience stop and they realise that this is what it's going for, a laugh. Yeah. And the show goes on and... Is a smash hit. Standing ovation. Yeah. He um, When Roger comes on, he he's playing a very camp Hitler, which... People are walking out of the theatre and they see him come on stage and the lighting turns from white to pink and he's being very foppish and they suddenly realise, oh, this is a joke. Yeah, but then for something that is a joke, there are such beautiful bits of choreography, a bit with the mirror and mm-hmm. then how all the dancers align themselves That's another chorus line into reference. the swastika and you have the aerial shot, but you can then see from the audience... A play like this mm-hmm. should not have such an awesome moment. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, it's beautifully done. Yeah, you shouldn't have something so beautiful associated with the Nazi party. But I think that's the um, the point. Oh, I agree. If, if we still had Will Ferrell playing Hitler, it would be that we're supposed to take this seriously, yeah. but because they have gay Hitler it's suddenly satire and it's suddenly, oh, we can laugh at this. And even though it's still gorgeous and beautiful and the choreography is amazing, it's done that way to make it even more ridiculous. (laughs) It is some of the best choreography we have seen on this podcast. Yeah. And I just, I I loved it. And then we cut back to the offices. Congratulations, it's a hit. And Leo goes straight to the bin to dig out his blankets. Yes. And they've got the newspapers already. It's a satirical masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Where did we go right? Yeah. Where did line. we go right? Where did we go right? And then 
everyone's coming in congratulating themselves. Will Ferrell comes in with a gun. Yeah. We get some brilliant alliteration from Roger. Mm-hmm. Particularly you didn't write that down. No, I didn't. I just sat and I enjoyed this bit because it yeah. was so silly. They want to kill all the actors because they're it's determined. They're making fun of Hitler? Yes. Is that why? Yeah, basically, Max is trying to think of another way to kill this show. Yeah. And presumably, if you have a show that inspires a Nazi to go in and shoot your cast and whatever, Mm -hmm. that show will never be done again, no matter how good it is, because, you know, the risk of follow-up attacks. Yeah. And then the police come bursting through. Will Ferrell tries to shoot himself, but... Storms off shouting, you'll never catch me alive, fools. And he's broken his second leg. Yeah. And Max is sent to jail. Yes, Because of the two books, one for the IRS and then the... One that should never be shown to the IRS. And in comes Ula looking for Max and Leo. Say, come, mm. everyone's waiting for the opening party. Shuts the door. <laughs> Leo's got the best hiding place ever. He's He's... On his coat hanger attached to the. He's inside his coat with a coat hanger in it hanging on the back of the door so that he just looks like a coat when they open it. Yeah. I love one of the things I really like in this show is that Uva knows exactly what's going on all the time but acts like a complete idiot. Which I think, yeah, great. She's exploiting them. She's. She knows what's going on, but she knows that she's going to get what she wants out of it. Mm. There's the reference where she says that she knows that Max has had to stup all the old ladies in New York yeah. to get the money. She says to Leo here that, oh, you must have hung yourself up inside your coat. And he's like, no, we, we're going to be caught by the IRS. We need to leave now. And she's like, oh, because you kept that million dollars? And well, he's, got, like, he's like, yes. well, you've got two options. You can either go to jail or you can come to Rio. With me. And, and we cut to Max in jail, Yeah, which is another beautiful set. Yep. And the transition from postcard to actual Rio. Oh, that's gorgeous. The oh, zoom in. I love that shot. I have done a shot like that when I was doing film studies mm. at college. We had to make like a little five minute kind of film. Yeah. And I did like, we did a police interrogation, like film noir style. Mm. And we had like a picture of a dead body. Yeah. Kind of be like evidence. And we zoomed in on the picture. And, and then threw it into the... Seamless cut, something I'm so proud of, into the footage there. <laughs> That's so, so cool. proud of it. And yeah... It's, I love it when that happens, especially as seamlessly as this did. Yeah. Nathan Lane sings Betrayed. Mm-hmm. He becomes his mother and then realises this isn't my backstory. Yeah. And he recaps the entire show and he sings everyone else's number and he takes on other people's roles mm-hmm. and that's why he deserves the Tony. Yeah. Undoubtedly. It's that scene for me mm-hmm. that won him the Tony. If yeah. it translated as well on stage, which I'd imagine is far better on stage than it was here, which is saying something, Yeah, that scene alone is for your consideration. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It is amazing. We cut to the courtroom. Yep. Least favourite set because it's the most real, but mm-hmm. fine. Bing Bong sends Max to jail. Yeah. 
These, it's the voice actor, right? The voice actor of Bing Bong, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and just to, so they've already said he's not. He, they've already said he's guilty. Mm-hmm. And in walks Leo. And Ula. In his white suit with his blanket as his pocket square. Pocket square. Mm-hmm. And they sing. Not my favourite of songs, but kill him. A, it is a good song. Yeah. I think at this point... He's too know, late. <laughs> yeah, you know at this point... Yeah, but you know at this point it's it's wrapping up. Mm-hmm. It's kind of my moment where I'm starting to get a little bit restless. Yeah, I think this part of the film drags a bit. Everything else has been yeah. really up-paced and... And, I mean, it's not even that bad. We're only here for maybe five minutes yeah. for this song. However, I think because the set isn't as spectacular I'm not as invested in this moment mm-hmm. so I wasn't kind of having as much fun and it's a beautiful song and a beautiful sentiment and I'm sure on Broadway it probably is better yeah just set wise and we do get one of my favourite jokes of him leaving the courtroom silence dragged back in yeah and the judge says well I couldn't split up such good friends mm. five years for each of you yeah and and they get sent to prison. And they continue with their hijinks. Will who's also bought Adolf the Pigeon. Yes. <laughs> really weird. But they're continuing the exact same thing. They haven't learnt. No. They're selling the rights to prisoners. Prisoners of love. Of love. You know, they've sold 60% to one inmate. They've sold 100% to the warden. Mm. Yeah, Max asks Leo, how, how much have you sold? And he says, oh, 600%. And he's like, no, we need 1,000. And then they are announced that you've been, the governor's let you off for good behaviour because you've bought joy and happiness to sing, sing prison. Yeah, joy, music and happiness. And we cut to opening night for Prisoners of Love. On Broadway. I was hoping we'd have John Barrowman come back on screen on stage for this dance number. Yeah, it's a shame. You know, it seems like they've got a lot of the same ensemble coming on for that. Yeah, they do. And it's a success. Everyone loves it. And they walk out and he finally bestows upon Leo the hat. The producer's hat, yeah. And they walk off down Times Square a success with a range of different shows. Mm-hmm. You liked... They don't... It's Broadway. They walk down Broadway. What did it's I say? It's not Times Square. Okay. Either way. Yeah. They walk off. Success. Mm-hmm. And they've taken over South Pacific. Yeah. And my favourite one, Death of a Salesman on Ice. My favourite one's Cats, but with a K. Yeah. <laughs> cats. I... I love that. It's this kind of humour that I'm in for. This is a mm-hmm. musical theatre nerds musical. Yes. And you can see all these throwbacks to different periods of time, mm-hmm. respecting them, but also kind of joking with them. I honestly feel without this show, you wouldn't have something like Book of Mormon. Yeah. I think this is such a good show. It does such a good job of being a love letter to Broadway, to musicals, mm. whilst also being very tongue-in-cheek about it. Yeah. And we get the opening number over the credit, the closing number over the credits. Yeah, so the credits have been talked about a lot because they have two of the dancers, the showgirls characters, dancing the credits. 
And there's bits where they like they do the splits, and as they do the splits, the screen starts to rise, and they're waving goodbye as they go up off of the screen. And it's like an interactive credit character thing. It's really weird, but it's been talked about a lot because people are so impressed by that. But the song is also interactive because it's telling everyone goodbye. Go on, off you go. Show's yep. over now. There's nothing more to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, one of the things I wanted to say was when they're reading the reviews of Springtime for Hitler. Yeah. One of the reviews that they read says something along the lines of it's outrageous, racy and dreadful, but I loved every second of it. Is that a real review? Of that producers? was a review that was written for the movie version of Producers in the 60s oh, that's when it brilliant. came out and they kept it in. So the movie version of the Producers is the same plot but without the music. Yeah. That's very daring or such close proximity to the war being over. You know, you're looking at there are a lot 22 of... years after. Yeah, there were around that kind of time, people had started being able to laugh at it again. And it was also the start of, like, the rise of war movies again. Yeah. And especially, like, tragedy movies. Because between World War Two and 9-11 was like the peak of tragedy movies. Yeah. We had big blockbuster movies where they were quite happy to flatten New York yeah. in their film or destroy a whole country. And we still do get disaster movies. We still do, but the last... Roland Emmerich is waving that flag proudly. Yeah. But, yeah, after 9-11, they kind of tried to put a stop to that. And we moved into the superhero movie. Yeah, genre. because it's okay to show it if it's not realistic. Yeah, and we still get worlds being destroyed. You just need to look at, like, Age of Ultron, for Mm -hmm. instance, at something like that. But I think we moved more into the superhero genre, partly because... We needed that degree of separation. Yeah, and we needed... Which is fair. ...to feel protected. Yeah. So a lot of the movies around that time started satirising World War II because it was kind of the time at which we started to be able to laugh at things. Yeah, which is fine. I always say we've got to laugh at the things that scare us because they're not so scary anymore. Mm -hmm. And you can face something if it's not scary. Yeah. Fear of a name increases fear of the thing itself. Wise words, Rubius Hagrid. That is actually said by Hermione. I mean, very Potter musical would have you believe they both look the same. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, very wise words from a very, very wise young wizard sure (laughs) okay so in terms of the reception that it got I know you don't like Rotten Tomatoes no I'm cool with that it has Um, a 50% rating yes which I think is very interesting considering this probably is a Marmite musical in that I'm sure a lot of people are offended by it. I've already said that. And I'm sure a lot of people find it distasteful. So it's interesting that it's a half and half. But people have said that a lot of the reason why they don't like the film is because they think it suits the theatre better. Which I think is, to be completely honest, nonsense. Yeah, me too. I think they've done a really good job at making this clear it is a musical and embracing the theatre st- 
style. This mm-hmm. isn't like Lamy's where it's trying to sell that this is completely real world. This is a very theatrical world. Yeah. And I think that's... I don't think that's fair. So the best review that they have was uh, Betty Jo Tucker, who wrote, Congratulations to director Susan Stroman for making this Broadway gem into a film that old-time movie musical fans like me can cheer about. That is exactly who it's for. It's for old-time movie musical fans. It's for the people that would watch Oklahoma over and over again. Like, classic musicals, because that's what it's inspired by. It's almost like this is Spinal Tap, that in terms of mockumentary style of behind the scenes, what it's like to be a rock band. This is that mock sense of what it's like behind the scenes working with actors. I don't know what that means. You've never seen This is Spinal Tap? No. Oh, my days. We need to change that. I'm aware of its existence. Okay, so my first question is if you could play a character in this, who would you want to be? Leo Bloom. Why Leo and not Max? I know those (laughs) those are the two that I figured you would go for. I love Max. Yeah. And there's a lot of fun with Max. Mm Mm-hmm. But I really like, I really like Leo Bloom and just how lame he is. Yeah, okay. And I think you have so much fun with moments with him. I guess it's a difficult question for me to ask you is who would you be? Because you've only got There's one option. There's one female character. But which character do you find yourself most drawn to that you think as a performer is maybe the most fun to play? My favourite character in this is Roger. Yeah. He's great and over the top and ridiculous and he gets to be such a drama queen, throws himself into his chair because he needs them to butter him up a little bit more before he'll agree to help I would really like to play Roger as well. I think he's a really fun moment. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm the right casting for Roger (laughs) for many reasons. I think you could camp it up. But I also think that'd be a disservice if I did. Yeah, I understand why. Yeah. So I just, I really like Leo, even though he kind of stays the same throughout. I guess with Leo, what's fun is you go from this very stuffy place to suddenly a more exciting place. Mm. And that's going to be so much fun. You know, you're seeing the world for the first time through Leo's eyes. Max has done this many a time. Yeah. And I think you can really bring that fresh-faced enthusiasm. Because I think secretly Leo knows this is a scheme. And if it weren't for the fact that he would face jail, Mm -hmm. would want this to work. Yeah. Because he's always wanted to be a producer. Yeah, he's quite happy that it does well. But then at the same time, he's not happy because he knows the consequences of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that'd be really fun to play with, the idea that you've got to keep yourself in check every time. You might take a step forward and have to go two steps back because I can't get excited by this. Yeah. Who is your MVP for this film? John Barrowman. <laughs> I gave him an honourable mention because he's amazing, but, you know, he's not in it frequently enough. The entire time he's on stage, he I'm draws focus. Oh, yeah. And, and I think for a character who doesn't have a name and isn't a character. He's literally just here to sing this one part. And he nails it. Hmm. And I think even if I didn't know who he was, I would be like, this guy's amazing. Oh yeah. Why isn't he a character? I will say 
as much as I would love to give John Barrowman on his debut for our podcast my MVP, because mm-hmm. he will always be the MVP of my heart. Obviously. <laughs> it's got to be Nathan Lane. Yeah. Because my favourite song... There's a reason why he won the Tony. My favourite song in all of this is Betrayed. Yeah. Because I love His the callbacks to everything. Yeah. And Nathan Lane is magnificent in that. And I can't not say he's my favourite part when that is as amazing as it is. Mm. I love all the songs on this. I think they're great. Yep. But that one to me is is the best because it has them all. And it's done so well with his rushed voice. Yeah. Like I said, my least favourite songs are the Will Ferrell songs. That's not because they're performed badly. It's because I think we don't need both of them. You know, could he have just stood up with more of this German seriousness and shouted at everyone and then Max shouts, you're Hitler. Yeah. Without a song. Probably. And I think maybe without both of them, one of them stands out more. I'm being really mean. I've got to say one I enjoyed least. Yeah. You I know, would agree with that. I think the the audition section is my least favourite part of songs. Yeah. I think that's fair. Hmm. Overall, I gave this five stars. Yay! I Is that your first five star? No, because Newsy's got five stars. Oh, okay. As has My Fair Lady. Okay. Sorry. My memory's terrible. So this is definitely up there with, yeah. with Newsy's with My Fair Lady. Mm-hmm. I can't really fault a thing about this. No. It's, it's such a good show. Amazing. I knew you'd enjoy this one. I knew it when I picked it. Yeah, it's it's just incredible. It's the kind of innuendo, dark-ish humour that I like and can get on board with without yeah. maybe going too far one way or maybe losing points for not going far enough. Mm-hmm. It's just so much fun. And I think you can tell the cast are having a great time doing it. They definitely are. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed this one. Good. I'm so glad. So you already know this week what I've picked. I've actually forgotten. For next week. I know it's got Anna Kendrick in. Yeah. So we're having a returns week. So it's Jeremy Jordan. From Newsies. And Anna Kendrick. From Into the Woods. Yes. And we're going to be watching the last five years. Because cool. you, you asked if we could do one that was a little bit more serious this time. Yeah. I never know what we're going really to watch next week until this part. Mm-hmm. You had told me about Potter Musical. Yeah, because that was going to be a labour of love. It was a labour of love and you told me to clear my schedule. Yeah. This one, I think you're going to enjoy it. I'd said to you, I think we've done, essentially, in the past three weeks, mm-hmm. five comedy shows. Yeah. With the Very Potter Trilogy with Once Upon a Mattress Mattress and with the producers. Yes. And I think it'd be quite nice to return to maybe a more serious side of musicals. Mm -hmm. I say traditional, but maybe what you'd expect them to be. Yes. However, with the one that I've picked, because I I assume you don't know anything about the last five years. 
that's very rude. I've paid attention to my life. I know what's happened in the past five years. Um, With the last five years, it's a very cinematic film. And we'll watch, obviously, we're watching the film version. We're not watching the stage version. However, it is not in order. And that makes it a very interesting musical to watch. So it's non-linear. So I think it's something you enjoy. That. Yeah. I I am a fan of non-linear narratives. Yeah. That's always an interesting approach to storytelling. So yeah, I think I think I'll enjoy this one. This is another one that I love, and it's also a return of a song from the Do Not Sing list. So excellent! That must be a very overused song because I'm assuming this one's quite a new musical. It's newer, so it must have a real big impact if it's already on the Do Not Sing list. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Well, where can people find us? If they're looking for us. This is really exciting for me. I'm very proud to be able to say that we are on iTunes Podcasts. Yeah. That feels so real to me because mm. that is where I've kind of done the bulk of my podcast consuming in the in the past. Is it? That's This is why I was so excited when we got onto Spotify is because that's where I listen to everything. Well, Spotify is a big deal. I have a Spotify subscription. You have a Spotify subscription. Yeah, we pay for Spotify. <laughs> and we're on Spotify. That's awesome. Everyone knows Spotify. Mm-hmm. And to be on iTunes, to be on Apple Podcasts, for me is just amazing because since I started listening to podcasts about five years ago, ironically, I've been listening via Apple Podcasts. Yeah. And yeah, we're we're now on Apple. Yeah. So you can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher Radio. If you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, subscribe, let us know your thoughts, help us with the old algorithm. Yeah. If you would like to get in contact, we do have Twitter and Instagram. Our handles are It's a Musical Pod. Yep. And you can also email us on It's a Musical Pod at gmail.com. Tell us if you are maybe one of the people that hates the producers, if you really don't like this film, because I wouldn't be surprised, but it. I love it. It would be interesting to hear from somebody who doesn't. Yeah, let us know. You know, what do you think of the topic? Is it maybe too much or is it in line with your sense of humour and your tastes? Also, if you hate the producers, thank you for listening to this whole podcast. Yeah. (laughs) We don't ever kind of talk about that, that what if somebody really dislikes a show that Mm. we're covering? Do they stick with us the whole time or do they kind of abandon ship or skip? Probably not. Who knows? (laughs) Thank you for joining us as we talked about the producers. Yeah, and as usual, have a fantastic, magical, musical Monday.